Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 12, 18 through 27. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, thank you. Now, so, usually I have the words on the screen, but if you want to follow along, uh, which I encourage you to do, we're in Mark chapter 12, verse, starting in verse 18. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Um, if you were listening closely, I imagine that uh, the first part of her, the reading confused you. You were listening kind of closely. And that's, that, if, you, if you're confused, that's good, because that means you were listening. Um, and I, one of my jobs as your pastor is to help explain the scripture. And so when something is not clear or if we have big old question marks, we need to dig in the scripture and not run away from a passage, but dig in because we have this belief that God's word is powerful and it, and it means something for our lives. All right, even today. So again, Mark 12, verse 18 is where we're going to start. Now, uh, one of the things that I also do uh, as a pastor is I'm called on to do funerals. Now, uh, a lot of y'all know I'm kind of a dork. And so when I figure out I have to do something, I just try to read a bunch of books on it to try to grasp and get my mind around what am I supposed to be doing. And one of these books, aptly named Funeral, uh, one of the books that I was reading, uh, I know it was creative. Uh, <laughs> one of the books that I was reading, it, it, made, it had this, this critique on the modern way that we treat death. It talks about how we try to distance ourselves from it and how we even try to sanitize the experience by the words that we say. They didn't die, they passed on. You know, in different cultures, um, you know, we didn't, the, the person who died a lot of times would die in their house, around their family, and sometimes the, the body would be there but we have to, we, in our culture, we separated so much from our normal life. And the book was saying, and I think that they're, they're right, is because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about death, even though we all know it's coming, right? I don't care who you are, where you're from, one of them day, these days, death's going to call your name. But the Christian way is not to avoid death and not to not talk about it and not to avoid it. You know, the, the Christian way is one that we know that life is relatively short and that death is certain. Yet this does not have to terrify us. The fact of death, the fact that it's coming, and that life is short, it does not have to testify us because we serve a God who is so faithful that he will raise us up again after death 
so that he will be faithful to us forever. And because we serve a God that is that faithful, we ought to believe in and look forward to the resurrection. All right, let's ask God for his help. Lord, please help us to understand your word. Would you fill me and fill us all with the Holy Spirit? Give us ears to hear what you would say to us. And Lord, not only that we would understand, but, but through the commands of your word, you would give us grace to obey. So speak to us, Lord. Show your kindness by giving us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm going to give you a little primer. All right, what exactly do Christians believe about the resurrection of the dead? Like, what, what is the standard Christian teaching? And here it is. It says, that, that we believe in a bodily resurrection, so that we're not going to be like little spirit clouds floating around. We believe in a bodily resurrection when Jesus comes back to judge everyone. The righteous will receive everlasting life. The unrighteous will receive everlasting death. That is the, the Christian teaching in a nutshell, that we will have to give an account and that we will we'll either live with our bodies and glory with Jesus, or we will suffer with our bodies and punishment. That's, that's the, the, common, the common thing. And, and so we're getting, when we, I wanted to, to paint that picture, make it clear, so that when we're talking about the resurrection, you have the Christian teaching in your mind. So let's get to verse 18. Verse 18, it says, Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. All right. So if you're reading, if you're, I'm going to give you some Bible reading tips. In that sentence, in that first sentence, that is what's going to tell you what the whole thing is about. There's a lot of rabbit trails we can follow in this passage, okay? A lot of rabbit trails. But the first verse in this passage, it gives the main point, that the Sadducees are trying to argue this point, that there is no resurrection. Because really, the resurrection is hard to believe, is it not? We're just going to be honest with it. So who were these Sadducees? They were a powerful religious group that denied the existence of angels, spirits, and the resurrection of the dead. And that might sound strange to you because they were practicing Jewish people, but, but we live in a world ourselves that denies the resurrection of the dead. Right? We have this, this prevailing thought pattern, which if you haven't heard of it, you certainly have experienced it. It's called naturalism. It teaches that all that really exists is the things that you can discern with your senses. If I can't see it, if I can't hear it, if I can't taste it, if I can't touch it, it's not really real. It doesn't really matter. All that's here is all that is here. And when you die, the teaching of naturalism, though they don't really get to this part, is you just cease to exist and your body rots. That is, that is one of the, the fundamental primary teachings that, that we are that we hear in, in our universities that this this, this is just this all this life is all there is and then when you die you die you, you disappear and you just rock. Well, hello phone. Not my phone, somebody's phone talking. All right. So does that sound like a very optimistic view of life to you? No, that's horrible. That's why when even people believe that that's the case, they don't ever talk about it. They, they at least pretend as if it's not true. And even if we don't think about it, and even if our culture doesn't really present it that clearly, a lot of times we try to live a life with at least that doesn't think about what happens next. That's what yellow is, right? 
You only live once. Is that true from a Christian perspective? Nah, nah. But but if, if this is all there is, I better get what I can, right? I made a more sophisticated case of YOLO for those who don't know what that means. Is a bucket list. Let me get my bucket list because I'm about to I'm about to die. That's all there is. We want to distract ourselves from the truth of our mortality. Because sometimes the resurrection is hard to believe, but the opposite, we don't want to sit with that either. And what the Sadducees is good and believe in a resurrection, what they are trying to do is they're trying to confuse Jesus and they're trying to say, the resurrection doesn't even make sense. How would you teach that? It doesn't even make sense. So let's go, let's see how they go about doing that in verse 19 and 23. And if you got tripped up, this is where you got tripped up. So let's get it. All right. Teachers, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying, left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. And the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Since the seven had married her. All right. Now remember the primary point. The primary point is not about this. The primary point is they're trying to give a supporting argument that the resurrection doesn't make sense. So have that in your mind. Now why, why do they think the resurrection does not make sense? Because they're using this example of an ancient practice called Leverite marriage, where in this extreme example, a woman ends up having seven husbands before she dies, and they're like, well, if the resurrection is true, wouldn't it be really awkward? I mean, that, that essentially is the argument. It'd be mad awkward. You're like, who, who's she going to be? Now, let me just give you a little bit about this practice so you have a, uh, some understanding. In the, in, the, in the ancient world, if a woman's husband died before they could have children, the husband's brother was responsible to marry the widow, and help her have children. Now, that is a weird law to us. Yeah, that, what in the world is going on? That's Augur's law, get out. Now, whenever we're looking at Old Testament law, because it's so distant from us, what we should do is ask ourselves this question. Who does this law protect? That's the law, law's function as protection, yeah? So, so I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't live in ancient Israel, and neither do you, and this sounds crazy. It, 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 I mean, ain't nobody prepared now. I mean, weird's all get But, who does this law protect? And you can kind of see uh, God's intention of it. So listen, if, if, so if a woman's husband dies, we're in a society where her current and future economic well-being is in jeopardy. There's no social services. When the law was first written, this is a, like a, a migrating people. There's no social services. And, and the other thing is a lot of times in the, in the ancient world, Nobody would want to marry this widow. So, so she doesn't have any financial security. And a lot of times, your children, you ain't have uh, no, no investment. Your children were your investment. So you, when you get old and you can't do stuff, the idea is that those whom, whom you uh, fathered or mothered, they would take care of you. So in this situation, and in that particular culture, the woman whose husband died before she had children, she is in a life or death situation. Her current future economic status is, is, is in jeopardy. And listen, they lived in a physically dangerous world. You know, we don't got to worry about lions rolling up on us. You know what I mean? 
Like, we live in a physically dangerous world that where outside of the confines of family, you could be in danger from other people. So who was this law to protect? The woman. You first read the law, you're like, that's weird. But God is saying, no, I am going to ensure that there is a covenant connection so that this widow is not destined to live in poverty and in danger. Now, the other, re- the other person that it protects is it protects the honor and the memory of the brother. Now, listen, this is in a, in a culture in which your legacy was most seen through your children. Ain't no pictures, right? There's just your son. <laughs> Who will remember you? What the, the person that looked like you? Some of the Old Testament law was regulating situations that were not and are not ideal. The law, many of the laws in the Old Testament, they are are regulating in a world that is broken and has human sin. I'll give you you two examples. One of my favorite laws, because it's kind of random, but listen to it. One of the laws is like when you have a house and and the roof is accessible, is that it is against the Old Testament law for you not to have a rail. Why does that exist? Well, because we live in a world where people trip. Right? It's as simple as that. Now, is, is it like God just loves rails? Rails are just awesome to him? Like, like, like we live in a broken world, a fallen world where people make mistakes. So, so he is regulating something. I, I think, I guess it would be ideal if people didn't trip. I mean, that you trip, it hurts. Right? Like, it, it would be ideal, but we don't live in an ideal world. So in order to regulate what's going on in a non-ideal world, God has written laws. But that doesn't mean that the law is revealing what, what he loves on the surface. You have to ask the question, who is he trying to protect in a world that is broken and fallen and simple? If you would read the Old Testament like that, those laws will start making a little bit more sense to you. Because you're like, what is going on? You don't live in that culture. You don't know what's going on. But you can know that it is God's intention to protect and to care for those who are weak. And so many of the laws are regulating that. Another uh, law would be the laws regulating divorce. Now, because God has laws on divorce, would you go, God just loves divorce? No, we live in a broken world. And listen, the person who is at most danger in an ancient divorce would be the woman. And so there's laws regulating, so you just can't do whatever you want to do so that she will be protected. I tell you all that this doesn't have a lot to do with the resurrection, but I want, you, I want you to defend the scriptures right now. Some people will try to pull the law out and tell us the scriptures are crazy, but they don't know the tools and how to read the scriptures. So before somebody tries to pull a, a, an obscure law out of the Old Testament, and tell you how crazy it is, you ask yourself the question, who is this meant to protect? And then you'll realize that his laws are not arbitrary, but that he cares greatly and deeply about those who cannot protect themselves. All right, we're going to move on. The Sadducees gave the worst case scenario of this situation to make the res- resurrection seem so, like this doesn't even seem feasible. Well, you married somebody and they died, and then you married the other person and they died, and then you married the other person. Like, like, they were giving the most crazy uh, 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 construction of the situation. They're like, how would the resurrection make sense if she's going to have seven husbands? What's going on? Now listen, 
I don't know all of the objections to the resurrection but that exist today, but they're probably not this one, right? <laughs> like that, that one doesn't translate as well, but, but we do have objections to the resurrection. Some would say, listen, we don't believe in miracles that are supernatural. We don't believe in that stuff, man. Like you die, you die. Like if anything that I can't, happens that I can't explain, like in a physics class, I'm just not going to believe it. Now that would be an actual argument. That would be an argument that, that we would understand. We don't believe in that stuff, man. Or some would say if the resurrection is true, then, then maybe people won't make the most of this life. I've heard that before. You will not live this life to the full if you think there's another one coming. So why would you spend your time thinking about something that you don't even know for sure if it's going to happen? And some just can't imagine what it would be like. And a lot of times, if we can't imagine something, then it, to us, it does not exist. Like, are we going to be, are we going to have wings? Are we going to be floating around? Like, what are we going to do all day? All these questions are going out. And you're like, if I just, if I, if I can't fit into the box of my imagination, then it must not be true. But Jesus, in response to their objection, which is not the same objection, but we have our own, the response is this. The scriptures and the power of God point to the truth of the resurrection. In verse 24, Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you are mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Jesus answers their and our objections regarding the resurrection. He's saying, listen, the trustworthy, divinely inspired scriptures point to the resurrection. Maybe out of all the things in the scripture, maybe this part, it's kind of hard for you to get your mind around a hard for you to grasp. But the promises that give us joy and hope and peace are found in those same scriptures. If you can say amen to the fact that God forgives your sin because of Jesus, even though you can't quite conceptualize the resurrection, it's coming from the same source. So if there's, there's issues in the scripture, I don't quite understand that, but there's these other things that give me such hope and joy and peace. I understand they come from the same source. So if the scriptures teach it, and that's what we should believe. Not only is that, is that God, Jesus saying, listen, you don't think God is powerful enough to resurrect? If he created matter and everything we see and everything that we don't see, and he sustains it so that it is not disintegrating right now, how could it be too hard to raise somebody from the dead? He continues, and this is another part of the scripture too. He continues, and the main point of verse 25 is this, is that the righteous are resurrected and never die again. Verse 25, it says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And this is going to confront us in a, in, a, in a multiple ways. One of the things that confronts us foremost is that this assumes, this assumes that one of the main reasons for marriage is producing and nurturing children. This assumes that. This takes a stab at our modern selfishness. But the primary reason to get married is so I can feel butterflies in my tummy. Now, you should. I feel butterflies in my tummy. You should, you know? But, but listen. I don't write my jokes, y'all. Uh, <laughs> listen, for those who are married, this assumes that your marriage is not only for your benefit. It's not just so that you can feel happy. And listen, 
even if providence in some way or another pre prevents you from having children, your marriage should nurture and care for others in some way. The teaching about this really confronts our modern conventions of Romans. Because in a world in which none die, no one new needs to be created. Therefore, the institution of marriage is set aside. Now listen, I like my wife. The news of this news of not being married to her in the new I don't, I don't particularly like that. I like being married. Yeah, this is what I do know. My friendship and relationship with my wife will be holy and without sin. There are so many times when I don't treat her the way that she deserves me to treat because I'm a fool. And sin just comes about my heart. But I can think, I, I can know this, that there will be a day when, when I can treat my wife with all the honor and the respect that she deserves because sin will be gone. And I will be able to love her and serve her far better in the resurrection than I ever could now. And because of the resurrection, we will live in a world without sin and death together with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now that, that's some good news. So not only do are, are people uh, resurrected to never die again, God's eternal faithfulness points to the rea reality of the resurrection. In verse 26, it says, And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So he's going back to, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen like uh, uh, some of the Prince of Egypt. You know that cartoon movie with Moses in it? Anyway, I don't remember the name. It was awesome. Uh, but the part uh, of, the, of, the, of the movie in which, which Moses is out in the desert and God appears to him in a burning bush. And he's like, I want you to go back to Egypt and free your brothers. And Moses is like, who are you? What is your name? What is your name? So at least I can tell him who sent me. And he says, God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is pointing to the tense of the verb. He didn't say, I was. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am present. How can he be present since the God of somebody who's dead? That's the point he's getting to. The fact of the matter is that, that God's faithfulness is so powerful, it almost necessitates that his people will live after death because he's not done being faithful. He, listen, listen. In, in the span of eternity, 70 to 100 years is a pretty small amount of time, yeah? It's not actually that long of being faithful. Like, if you came to me and said, I was faithful one day, I'd be like, I, you know, like, that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> but God, because he is eternally faithful, pledges to be eternally faithful to his people so that even after you die, you will still live so that God can be faithful to you forever. Listen, the, those who are his people in the past are still his people because he is still faithful. Christian, God will be eternally faithful to you. It, it, it almost is an overflow of his character. Eternal plus faithful. Eternal faithfulness. What does that have to do with you? That means that the God who is eternally faithful 
will be eternally faithful to you even after you die on this earth. That, that, that means that you will live on because God has, wants to have an object of eternal faithfulness. And that's you. Christian, Christian, God will be eternally faithful to you. Not only, so here's, here's the cool thing. We, we don't only have to look to the scriptures or to the power of God. We can look to the resurrection of Jesus as our experience. Now, in this, in this time in the text, Jesus ain't, ain't raised from the dead yet. But 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning this, that if Jesus rose from the dead, and he says he's going to raise us from the dead, and he already did it to himself, then we can believe that he'll do it to us. If he did it one time, what's another time? He is the first fruit. He's the proof that God will raise the dead. The same Christ who promises resurrection to those who believe is the same one who himself came back from the dead. So if you come to Jesus, his resurrection is a foretaste of your resurrection. Beloved, if you don't know him, come to him so that you can experience his loving faithfulness forever. And you're like, I don't know. How, how do I know? Well, he rose from the dead. So that means that my sample behind can raise the dead too. Because he's eternally faithful. Now listen, the resurrection of Jesus is something we receive by faith. But listen, I want you to know this. It also makes sense looking at the evidence for what happened. I'm put on a different hat, an apologetic hat for a minute. Listen to this. I want you for a moment to think about the motivation of the apostles. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, would it have made sense that they went around telling people that he had? Let's just, let's just, let's just assume, okay? Let, what, what motivation would they have for collectively lying? It's not like one person had a delusion. The Bible says 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time after he rose from the dead. So why? why what? So listen, it's not like somebody was forcing them to believe. Like if somebody was, was like, man, if you don't tell people Jesus rose from the dead, I'm going to kill you. In fact, it was the opposite. Yeah? So, so it's not that somebody like overly powerful was telling them. And not only that, like they suffered for their belief. Would, would it not have been a lot easier like when they were getting beating, beat, like beaten? They'd be like, just playing. <laughs> JK, y'all. Like, <laughs> I see nobody, you know, like, it would be like, 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 it's not like they, they got rich off of it. <laughs> now, if they made a lie where they got rich off, people would be like, oh, that could be a little suspect. But if their life from an earthly perspective got worse, maybe we should go, well, they really have a good reason to make that up. Maybe they're telling the truth. And then many who were close to them rejected them because of this belief. They were rejected by friends and family. Now listen, if they were lying, why, what benefit would come to them? Another evidence and a proof of the resurrection. I'm going to explain it. The first eyewitnesses were women. Let me tell you what that's a proof. In the ancient world, a woman's testimony cannot be accepted in court. So if you were going to lie, and make up a story about somebody rising from the dead, you wouldn't say that the first person to see him was Mary. 
That would, like in that context, it would have been like like it wouldn't have made any sense. Now Jesus dignifies women, and he's not ashamed. But if you if the apostles got together and said, "Yo, let's make up a really good story and teach people that Jesus rose from the dead," when they didn't, the person who saw him first would not have been Mary. And the bottom line is this: if Jesus was dead, why didn't anybody throw in the body? Now you might think that's this is a funny thing, but listen. The apostles are like fishermen. They're not like the CIA. Like, you know, like they're not just transporting bodies everywhere. And you know what I'm saying? Like, like, like it would have been so easy to quash the whole thing. Jesus is, if it's Jesus resurrected, what are you talking about? His body over that saw where you dug it. Listen, they're, they're, if, if, if the apostles and Christians were any way sane, it would not make sense for them to go around telling people, that Jesus rose from the dead. The evidence does not point to that. Matter of fact, even, even secular scholars, when they look at the resurrection, they would say, listen, I don't know if I believe it, but they had to have believed. Because ain't no reason they would have done what they have done. Beloved, we have some tangible reasons to bolster up our faith about this resurrection. And not only that, not only only makes sense to the evidence, but it provides us with hope. If Jesus rose from the dead, as the scriptures tell us, and as the evidence seems to point to, man, we can have a lot of hope. This life is filled with a lot of stuff that's just horrible. A lot of frustrating things, a lot of sad things, things that make your heart break. And if this life is all there is, That's a very sad story. But if what Jesus said and did is true, we can have hope that surpasses this life. Not only is the resurrection true, it brings hope, but here's this. You can believe in a God of justice because of the resurrection. I'll explain why. Tim Keller, the late pastor in New York, he says this. He says, most of his New York City hearers, hearers who are hearing him preaching, care deeply about justice for the poor, alleviating hunger and disease, and caring for the environment. Yet many of them believe that the material world was caused by accident, and that the world and everything in it will eventually burn up in the death of the sun. They find it discouraging when so few people care about justice without realizing that their own worldview undermines any motivation to make the world a better place. Why sacrifice for the needs of others if in the end, nothing will make or do any difference. That is not my phone. I don't know whose phone it is. It's this. All right. Okay. But if Jesus did raise from the dead, that means there's infinite hope and reason to pour ourselves out for the needs of the world. Listen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, the cause of justice is on the losing side. If you think about, man, life is about caring for people, and we should help people. Well, if everybody's going to die and disappear anyway, you're not on the winning side of that equation. Jesus did not raise from the dead. The social ills of our world will never, ever be adequately addressed. If if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there's a lot of people that's going to get away with a lot of stuff. 
But if Jesus is alive, and there's a day of reckoning, he will fully bring about justice. And because Jesus rose from the dead, our acts and love and service mean something because they culminate towards eternal justice and peace. You need to understand, beloved, that when you are loving and serving people, you are on the winning side of the universe. That there is going to, be, going to come one who is going to, to gather up all the good works of his people and establish eternal justice. And when you look back on a life of service, you will not regret. But you would see, oh man, he has vindicated me. And he has justified himself. He has made peace in this world. So, beloved, we believe in and look forward to the resurrection of the dead because God is going to be faithful to his people forever. Let's pray. Father, please help us to hope in the truth of the resurrection of your son. And, Lord, let us not doubt, though our, our culture and even our own hearts might might produce many objections and, and question marks, Lord, we can know this, that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if we follow him, so will we. So, Lord, please provide hope in our lives by this truth. And help us not be so discouraged at times that are dark because we know that you win in the end. And you will take us with yourself to be in a world of peace and justice. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.